Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, we've had a great opportunity to worship the Lord as He gave us that command to worship Him around His table and to take His cup and to take the bread and to think about His death for us. You know, this afternoon as well as this morning, I told the uh, different audiences that um, as I go through this message, if at times I sound a little weird or I begin to phase out, it's because yesterday I took my children to the state fair and I rode the Gravitron. That's right, the Gravitron. I got on this circular machine and I knew I was in trouble when it started when the fellow next to me turned upside down. You know, and off we went and suddenly I found that my, my lips were in cool, act like that. And it, it really did bother me. And uh, I've been kind of weird ever since. <laughs> and I knew that this morning when I did the message, and, and uh, it was about 10.05, and uh, I was just halfway through the notes. So I want you to know tonight, we're only going to go halfway through your outline. And uh, I, just blame it on the Gravitron, would you? <laughs> you know, the uh, great historian Will Durant a number of years ago, shortly before his death, published a, a small book called Lessons from History. Now, Will Durant was a historian who studied the history of man for some 50 years. And at the end of his life, he and his wife, Ariel, wrote this little book in order to leave some kind of legacy to us, summarizing what they thought were the great lessons that history should teach us and what we should give close attention to, lest we repeat history's errors rather than learn from history. And in one of the chapters of that book entitled History and Religion, he made a very powerful statement, and I'll quote him. There is no significant example in history of a society successfully maintaining its moral life without the, age, without the aid of religion. Though an atheist, I have to admire the honesty of Durant's remarks here. He is saying, in short, if there is no morality, it's because there is no religion in a society. You know, that's remarkable for a country like ours. Over the last few years especially, we have had more and more mocking of our religion through our secular media. Our universities generally seek to liberate our students from the need of religion once they are now men and women and they go off to the university. Our courts restrict our religious life evermore from the public domain with the chant of lawyers saying over and over again what has become our national slogan, the separation of church and state. Though many years ago it used to be, in God we trust. And as we watch our national religious life plummet, fact is, one generation ago, young people, over 74% of the young people of our country attended church regularly. Today in America, in 1989, some 24% attend church regularly. As we watch this religious life 
in our country began to plummet, we also see plummeting parallel with it what Durant would have told us all along, and that is our national morality. You know, the polls tell us that we are a more selfish people than ever before. We are a more self-indulgent people than ever before. But our indulgence and our selfishness has taken on a, well, it's taken on a more insidious look in the last 10 or 15 years, and of course, every one of us in this audience is aware of it. Now, not only do we seek to indulge, but we seek to do whatever we can to indulge, whether it's corporate life, whether it's political life, whether it's in the field of athletics and our sports heroes, we find more and more that we cheat, that we lie, that we steal, that we, if necessary, murder, rape, whatever, in order to indulge and to get what we want at any cost. We live for anything and everything, but we want to possess it all and to experience it all. And history will tend to shake her head at us in exasperation and cry out, you fool! Don't you ever learn anything? If there is no morality, it's because there is no religion. It's a lesson of history. There's also some powerful spiritual lessons. Many times just as powerful as this one. It has been documented in the New Testament and it's been documented in every Christian society and community since. And this lesson goes this way. There will be no significant change in any Christian's moral life without the aid of spiritual disciplines. Now, what is a spiritual discipline? Uh, using part of the quote at the bottom of your outline, let me add to it. A spiritual discipline is a time-tested activity that's consciously undertaken by a man or a woman. And in doing so, he or she places oneself before God so that God can transform us into the likeness of His Son. It's an activity that we consciously pursue and undertake. And it, by it, we place ourselves in a strategic position before God so that His grace can be poured out on us and so that we can be transformed. Another way of saying it is this. If there is no discipline, spiritual discipline, there will be no moral change. It's a lesson, a spiritual lesson from the New Testament as well as from history. Now before I elaborate further on those disciplines, I thought I would spend some time summarizing some of the thoughts that we have had so far. Some of you are visiting, some of you are new in this series, and you feel like, perhaps as I begin to talk about these things, that you're on the Gravitron. There's all this new stuff coming at you. So I think it'd be helpful tonight, since I'm also preaching next Sunday night as well, that I do a little summation of where we've been so far. I have talked about the fact that there are a number of things that we need to bring into our awareness if we are to understand why it is that the church finds it so hard to change. And one of the things that I pointed out a number of weeks ago is that we have a stunted view of our salvation. Our tendency is to see only one aspect of salvation and to overlook the other aspects which are so important to this issue 
called change. So in order to do that, I've used this overhead, and it's also in the back of your outlines, so that you can follow along with me. We need a broad understanding of our salvation, not a narrow understanding of our salvation, which is so much a part of today's church. So in doing that, let me tell you about, in kind of a visual, the three main components of this great salvation that we celebrated just a few minutes ago. Theologians call it justification, sanctification, glorification. But we can define those in some simpler terms. Justification deals with reconciliation. Or maybe a simple way of saying it is my sins. Justification is the act by which a holy God can now fellowship with a sinful man. It's the way we come to Him. Billy Graham is the master reconciler. We had him in our city. And he preaches this great doctrine of justification where people can come, sinful that they are, and find reconciliation with a perfect and holy God. Sanctification, on the other hand, deals with transformation. A simple way of saying that, as we did in the past, is change. As I am sanctified, I am changed. And I am changed according to a specific pattern. And that pattern is the image of Jesus Christ Himself. His character should become my character. His virtues, my virtues. His way of life, my way of life. And then finally, the third component is glorification, which deals with restoration. Restoration. And restoration is talking about my future. The fact that we will have a new body, a resurrected body, likened unto that of Jesus Christ. There'll be a new heavens. There'll be a new earth, the Scripture says. All things will be righted. God will proceed with His creative order, but now righted the way He wanted it all along when He created the first man and the first woman. Now, justification occurs in one moment in time. Some of you younger people want to break out in song at this moment, don't you? You know, one moment in time. It's the time in which it finally dawns on us that Jesus Christ is the answer. And in that moment that we place our faith, it only occurs once. When that happens, we are reconciled to God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what He's done for us. Transformation, however, occurs slowly over time. Change occurs slowly. It's not instantaneous. And though many times a person can come and say, I've been changed, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and though he's changed at the very core of his being, he may still fall into the same old habits and the same old patterns. Scripture is very clear about that. And some people think, I thought he was a Christian, as if he's supposed to be righted automatically. He's not going to be righted automatically. It's going to take time. And we talked about that in this series. Restoration occurs after my time. It's when it's all over. It's that destiny, that future destiny that, we've, that we're headed for. Now the focus of justification is on the wrong 
that I have done. I mean, we just sang about that. All my debts canceled. Why? Because a holy God died in a sinful man or a sinful woman's place. And all that justification is dealing with and focuses upon are those wrongs that you've done, those sins that you have done, even the sins that you will do. On the other hand, sanctification deals with what's right, the right that I can do. But notice I say at this point that I can do. I don't necessarily do it, but I have the opportunity to do it because God has equipped me in this sanctification portion of His salvation with His Word, His Spirit, His church, His presence to make us different. Restoration deals with the rewards I may receive based on the right that I do, but certainly based on the justification that I have. I may not do a lot, but the one reward I will receive is that I will stand before Him justified. That's a reward. But then it goes even beyond that into things that I achieve in this life for the cause of Christ. Now justification is made possible by the death of Jesus. Sanctification is made possible by the life of Jesus. And we'll talk more about that this evening. Glorification is made possible by the second coming of Jesus. Now in justification there's only one thing required of me and that's faith. The scripture says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There was nothing else he could do but just believe God. And when God comes and says, my son has died for you, believe it. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. We can only go through that passage of faith. On the other hand, sanctification requires faith and work. And that's where the disciplines, by the way, come in, right here. Because the disciplines are the key to that work. And in glorification requires of me nothing. You see, it's after my time. And it's all over at that point. Now the responsibility of the church in these three aspects of salvation fall along these lines. It proclaims justification. That's where Billy Graham comes in. Justification needs to be proclaimed outside these walls, not inside these walls. What occurs inside these walls when the people of God gather together is sanctification. And the responsibility of the church is to preach and to teach how one is sanctified. And when it comes to glorification, what the church does is promise that there will be reward for those who both believe Jesus Christ and to obey Him. Now one of the things I want you to circle here is justification. Because for many of us, even many of us in this audience, all we have heard growing up, preached, taught, emphasized, as well as discussed, is this great doctrine of justification. And it explains in part why there has been no change. Saved? Yes. Changed? No. If there's anything that we need to emphasize today, it's this middle portion of our salvation. Because it is the key 
to change and how God changes us. Now that is what I stated in the first message. Then we went on to talk about the heart. We said that the key to change is the heart. Not the literal heart, but the heart the way the Bible describes it. And the Bible describes our heart as that innermost spiritual, immaterial part of us where we deliberate and where we decide how we're going to live and what we're going to live for. Others may not know that. We may cover up really what our true motivations are, but those motivations are found in our heart. It's where we choose what to live for. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for it influences everything else in your life. Everything. It's a place that needs to be carefully scrutinized. And then in regards to the heart, I mentioned that the goal of our heart is critical to change. And though I'm somewhat generalizing here, the Scripture seems to indicate that there are really basically two choices for the heart of man. On the one hand, there is greatness. The heart can choose to pursue personal greatness. On the other hand, the heart can choose to pursue personal godliness. And those two are quite different and distinct. The first goal of personal greatness is most often expressed by the pursuit of wealth and money and position and power. Especially money. Because money gives us the opportunity and the ability to shield ourselves from others. It gives ourselves the opportunity to indulge in those things that we want to do, to create the image that we want to have for ourselves. And if we have enough of it, we can be unaccountable to everyone and yet have access to everything. And our world continually holds that out to us as the way of life. On the other hand, there's godliness, which is expressed and grabbed onto through these spiritual disciplines. And as one changes and becomes more godly, there becomes a new power and a new joy and a new image. But that image is crafted after the likeness of Christ. Now we saw last time that the disciples tried to do something very unique. They tried to mix those two pursuits, didn't they? But I want you to know, anytime you try to mix them, in the end, only one will be preeminent. And we saw in the life of these disciples that greatness was the preeminent goal before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whenever godliness is trying to mix with greatness, and greatness being the preeminent pursuit, godliness will not mix with it. It's like oil and water. They don't mix together. And when you try to mix them, when you try to mix them together, what tends to happen is your real pursuit of greatness will corrupt any pursuit of God. Jenna is a great example of that. It'd be a great study to have just as a personal Bible study. The life of King Saul. His whole life, from the time he received the crown to the day he impaled himself on his own sword in absolute depression. His whole pursuit was of personal greatness under the guise of personal godliness. And it didn't work. His greatness corrupted his godliness. It made it a burden. It made it hard. It made it impossible. On the other hand, when greatness, I mean, when godliness 
is your preeminent goal, interestingly enough, greatness can and sometimes does get mixed well with it. The counter to Saul was David, a man who was content to be a shepherd. And the reason he was content to be a shepherd is because being a shepherd was not his pursuit in life. Godliness was his pursuit in life. And what God did was take that pursuit and mix it well with greatness and give him the kingdom of Israel to rule over. And you know what godliness did for his greatness? It purified it. When they're reversed, they get corrupted. But when godliness is preeminent, it purifies greatness and even enhances that greatness. It's the same with us. If we pursue godliness, then greatness may come. But greatness is not the issue. And greatness is then purified because our primary pursuit is whether we have it or not. Our goal is to be godly. You know, that's expressed well, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And you might just turn there because of how well and simply it's expressed. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 6, really you can't say it much more simply than this. But godliness actually is a means of great gain, Paul tells this young Timothy. Godliness is a means of great gain. Do you believe that, by the way? Really? It's something that we need, need to ponder over. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. You see, the yoke of Jesus Christ is light. It's simple. It's godliness. It only becomes heavy when we begin to dump all kinds of other things on top of that yoke. And then life becomes stressful and pressured and impure and deceptive and many times corrupt. In fact, this week I was reading in the Harvard Business Review an article about business ethics, and at the end, the writer made this statement. He said, It is the maximization of profit at all cost that is the principal obstacle to achieving higher business standards in our country today. Get it all! Money! At all cost! Because that's the goal. And our whole economic system is based on that, but has it purified us? No. It's corrupted us evermore. Notice Paul says that in verse 9 and 10. He could have told us that lesson 2,000 years ago. He says in verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. I wonder if he had Saul in mind, this great king of Israel who pierced himself quite literally on his own sword. But notice verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God. Run from them. I'm going to start talking about these disciplines in a rather general way. 
But I want you to know this. If your heart has not been scrutinized, and if your heart is playing games with you, if there is a guise of godliness, but the real pursuit is of greatness, then I want you to know that it will make all these disciplines seem burdensome, hard, fund eliminators. You know, something I've got to just do, task. But they're not that way at all. They weren't that way for godly men. They were freeing. They were liberating. They were even exciting as well as fun. But the heart will tell it all in regards to the things that I want to share with you tonight. First, I want to look at these disciplines from a general standpoint. You might turn, just put down your notes. Don't worry about the notes for a moment. Let's just read the Scripture together, okay? You take so many notes, you're going to miss some of the key insights that I want you to hear. But first of all, turn to 1 John chapter 2. And let's read verse 6 together, and then let's just analyze it from how it impacts us as opposed to how it probably impacted those readers in the first century. John is talking about justification, and now he starts turning to sanctification. In the midst of this discussion, he says in verse 6, the one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner May I add, in the exact same manner as he walked. Now this verse is calling us to emulate the lifestyle of Jesus. And most often when a 20th century Christian reads this, his tendency is to think of Jesus' performance. Love one another. We think about Jesus reaching out to the poor. We think of his sacrifice for service. We think of His ability to withstand temptation. We think of His performances on the playing field of life. And oftentimes in many churches, this is all that's said about verses like this. We are then exhorted to go out and love one another. And then we go out and we try and we fail. Why is that? Why is it that we are told to give and we go out and we just get more greedy? It's because... In looking at the performance, we're only looking at one part, one aspect of the life of Christ. And this verse is calling us not to such a narrow perspective, but to look at the entire life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus's life, Jesus Christ's life was not just performance, but much of it, it was preparation for performance. Practice. Discipline. For instance, Jesus was one who mastered this book, even at a young age. He studied it. He memorized it. He used it. He confounded people with it. It was a discipline to study the Bible for Jesus. We often think, well, He was God. He already knew it. No, He didn't. He put aside those things when He came to this planet. He had to study it and learn it just like you do. Why was he in the temple asking questions about this book if he already knew it? But he studied it. And in studying it, it gave him direction in life. In mastering it, he was able to master temptation. In times of turmoil, he was able to, able to clarify his direction. 
because he knew the Scripture. Jesus gave significant time to reflection and meditation and prayer. It was part and parcel with all his life. It was behind much of his excelling performance in life. He denied himself certain wants. He practiced self-denial as a way of life. He didn't fulfill every impulse that he had. He gave many of those up. Why? In order to achieve his goal in life, his calling in life. He fasted for focus in his life. He had regular times of solitude, which were essential. Man, solitude was everywhere in Jesus' life if you read the gospel. In order to clarify perspective, in order to give him the time to think through major decisions as a man, that's the manner in which he walked. Those were his practices. And those practices led to an outstanding performance. And so when John here is calling us to walk in the same manner as he walked, he's not calling us just to go out and play. He's calling us to practice the way Jesus practiced. To prepare the way Jesus... That's what he said. Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've read this before, but I read it again in order to help you get a flavor of how the people felt in the first century when they read these kind of statements. In 1 Timothy 4, look at verse 7. It says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. I wish he hadn't said that. You know, I read that and wince every time I read that statement. But here's the part that I do like. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Do you believe that? It holds promise in this present life. In other words, it'll make a good difference in your life. But also, it says, in the life to come. Remember? Glorification. There's profit when we achieve here. Even in this life that occurs here after our time. Notice he concludes in verse 9, he says, this is a trustworthy statement and it deserves full acceptance. Now look at verse 7 again. See the word discipline there? That's the Greek word gumnazo. It's the word from which we get our word gymnasium. And when people in the first century heard this word used, their thought would turn to training, to exercising, to harnessing myself and my, my body in such a way that I can do a good job. It's practice. You know, a lot of people love the feats of Larry Bird. My young son is one of them. He's got a big poster of Larry Bird in his bedroom. He became a big Celtic fan a few years ago. You know, a lot of NBA players who are, play around Larry Bird would love to do some of the things that he does. But you know what they don't do? They're not willing to practice the way he practices. You know, 50 games into the NBA schedule when guys have been flying planes all the time, playing night after night, these incredible games with incredible athletes and, you know, just burning out their bodies. You know, about 50 games into that, if you and I were to fly up to Boston in the garden and get there about three hours early, 
and walk into that Colosseum, the lights would be dark, there would be no fans, there would be no ushers, and there would be no players. But as we walked in, we would hear a ball bouncing. And as we moved down close to that court, there would be, of all people, Larry Bird. Shooting foul shots, doing layups, practicing three-pointers, going over it and over it and over it and over it again. Why? Because two hours later, people will be scratching their heads wondering how in the world that guy could do some of the things that he does. And people kind of think that he just pulled that off the top of his head. Jesus didn't pull his performance off the top of his head either, people. It came out of practice. Gumnazo. Discipline. Paul often referred to this because people loved athletics in the first century just like they do today. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about the Isthmian Games. By the way, those were the games that were held in Greece that were the forerunner to the Olympic Games. And the Greeks loved their sports. In fact, Durant, whom I quoted out of one of his history books, he says, don't ever be persuaded by some that the Greeks really love Plato and Socrates more than their sports heroes. Because they didn't. They loved sports. And they loved the games. And I want you to know in 1 Corinthians 9, in verse 25, Paul is drawing upon that picture when he says, and everyone who competes in the games, the Isthmian games, exercises, put a period there. They exercise. They go over it and over it. And they sleep right. And they eat right. And they train right. And they practice all the new modern techniques in order to harness all the energies of their body so that they can receive, as it says at the last part of 25, a perishable wreath. Something that's going to be gone before the next frost. But not us. Though we model that, we do it for something much more imperishable by believing and achieving, which is profitable for this life and the next life, Paul says. And therefore, notice what he says, I run in verse 26 in such a way as not without aim. I know where I'm going and it's crystal clear. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I hit the target. I buffet my body and I make it my slave lest possibly after I have preached to others I myself should be disqualified. You know what he's saying to you there? He's saying you're always changing. I'm always changing. And I'm either disciplining and pulling my energies in a particular direction or I'm allowing those energies to pull me in the opposite direction because they will. And I'll be disqualified. So I'm either going forward or I'm changing backward. I get to choose by the disciplines I practice. In the New Testament, when Paul and Peter and even Jesus made statements like these general statements, people knew that they must draw upon certain disciplines to harness the life of God that He was offering them. The writers of the New Testament make no attempt to list what these disciplines are. 
You can find them as you read through the New Testament. But they are there. But because they're so foreign to us, I'm going to list them here for the conclusion of the message. It's going to take us a few moments, but I want to list them for you in two categories. The not-so-obvious and the obvious disciplines of the Christian church. And I believe the ones I'm going to give you, though probably not a complete list, and some would probably argue with that, I do think that they are, for the most part, an accurate list of the major disciplines that are found here in the New Testament. Now again, I just want you to jot them down and listen to me. The five that are the most obvious are ones you've heard, but maybe you haven't heard them in the light that I'm presenting them here in this series of messages. The not-so-obvious are ones that the church has almost totally forgotten about, and they will actually sound foreign to you in some regards, and maybe even hard, and something that you'd go, man, I don't know if I'd want to do that. But they are time-tested activities that allow us to experience in a fuller way the power and grace of God in transforming our lives. Here are the obvious disciplines. I'll give you five of them. Bible study, prayer, giving, service, and worship. Bible study, prayer, giving, service, and worship. Now these are disciplines in the first century, but today they are termed to be options. Options that are not tightly connected with your or my quality of life. But that is so wrong. See, we think that it's not necessary that I worship. Or, yeah, I can do it, but I'll stay the Bible occasionally. Or I'll pray occasionally. Or I'll give. You know, when I start feeling a little guilty that I've been spending too much on myself, I'll give. But I want you to know, that's like an athlete saying, I don't need to sleep. Or I don't need to go out and jog. Or I don't need to eat good foods. I can just do it. See, in the first century, they would have thought of these as absolutely necessary they were training methods that I had to do in order to achieve my goal that Jesus Christ had set before me. Today, unfortunately, we often treat these things as ways just to soothe our guilty conscience. Yeah, I better go to church this Sunday. Yeah, I need to show up for community group. I hadn't been there in six months. You know? Or yeah, I need to open my Bible. I really haven't read it lately. As if we're going to get by. See, that's a justification mindset only, not a sanctification mindset. Sanctification says, no, these are things that harness my spiritual energies and place me in a place where I can be transformed before God. These disciplines are not something that we occasionally do. These are things that we have to do if we're to be transformed. Let me, let me tell you, I'm concerned on these that many times we've even lost our perspective, like Bible study, for instance. I'm concerned that the primary purpose of Bible study has been lost. You know, many study the Bible because they love knowledge. And I'm one of those. I love knowledge. I love to read the Scriptures. I love the facts that the Bible has because it is so, it's so well put together. I love the crystal clear, clear logic that it presents. I love the, the, the answers that it gives and the security those answers bring in a world that raises a bunch of insecure questions but with no answers. 
I love that. But if I am not careful, and maybe if you're one of those knowledge kind of people, if you aren't careful, then it, in time, Christianity becomes a head trip. We become headers, you know? Just, just needing a new rush of facts to keep us going. But we have totally disassociated those facts with doing anything with them. And so churches pander to that. Yeah, come to us and we'll give you more facts. And we like that. We like the logic. It gives us a rush. But it doesn't do anything in the rush hour traffic the next day. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. But He didn't put a period there. He said, you shall know the truth and then the truth shall do something for you. He said, the truth will then go on and set you free. Let me illustrate that. For instance, in the classical quiet time. You know, you hear people say you need to have a quiet time. It's great for people to be studying on their own the Scriptures. And I think that's a worthy pursuit. But you know, if we are just ahead and we get up in the morning and we open up our Bibles, then our quest is for some piece of information to really stimulate us. If we're the other half of Christianity and getting into the Word, we've got other gifts and getting into the Word is not really a strong motivation for us, then when we feel like, yeah, I need to get in the Word and we open up, we hope it's going to make us feel. We're the feelers. Make us feel something. But you know what happens to most of us when we have our quiet time? When suddenly somebody says, you need to do this and finally we get convicted enough to do it, we get up groggy-eyed and we open up the Word and when we do, we look for some fact that's going to stimulate our brain or we look for something that we're going to read that's going to give us a rush of emotion and if it doesn't if we're reading about jesus withering the fig tree or we're going through the dietary laws of israel and we look and we say what does that mean and we're tired and so what we probably do is we close the book and we have a little short prayer god help me today amen and off we go and after about two or three times of that the frustration of that overrides any guilt we feel when people tell us we need to have a quiet time and we don't ever have one again. And that's why most of Christianity doesn't. They don't. It is so much better if our purpose for studying the Word was change. Remember I asked you to think of something that you needed to change in your life? Let's say you struggle with money. I would say a great way to study the Bible is to get up every morning and just say, you know, what's, you know what the problem is in my life? Money. And there's a concordance back here, and I'm going to look up the word money. And I'm going to look up all the verses on money. I'm just going to try to get some information on money. And I'm going to write down what some of those things say, what they're asking me to do. And I'm going to ask God to help me do those things, and I'm going to go out and try to start doing them. And when I fail, I'm going to talk to my friends. Why is it that I can't do this? And I'm going to work on it and work on it and work on it and maybe I'm going to study money for the next three years. But you know what? If it took me three years to make my money reflect this book, that would be so much better than three years of frustration and I have nothing to show for it in my life. Would you not agree? It's like marriage. It'd be better for a man studied about marriage the next 10 years and the result of that was a good marriage 
than to go to all kinds of things, hear all kinds of stimulating messages, but never see it as something he needs to go do and work at till he masters. Well, those are the obvious disciplines. Let me give you the not so obvious and we'll be finished. Again, I'm just going to mention and make one statement or so about each. The not so obvious discipline of abstinence. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. We live in a world that tells us that every impulse and every desire you have should be fulfilled and it's wrong if you don't get it. And yet real life and the Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches us that some passions need to be restrained and some need to be altogether denied for your whole life. That it's not good and it's not profitable even for this life to fulfill certain things. And some things need to be given up in order to help others who are weaker. That's what Romans 14 tells us. Abstinence is a discipline. And sometimes we just need to practice it. Give up something to see if we can. Because we're so used to indulging ourselves that we can't give up anything. And so we're torn in a thousand different directions. Then there's the discipline that I call environment. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Yes, we are to live as the church in the world, not outside the world. But at the same time in living in the world, the Scripture commands us to practice the discipline of good company, healthy people around us, a support system, a protective bubble. And if your crowd that you run around with pursues greatness, you'll pursue greatness. If your crowd that you run around with pursues impurity, you'll pursue impurity. You know why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. It's as simple as that. Solitude is another discipline. It's the one that I mentioned that Jesus practiced most of His life. It's a withdrawal from the regular routine and rush in order to get perspective, to step outside of the pace and to look at your life and to judge it and to evaluate it and to think on it in order to give clarity and order to it. It's something that very few of us do. But it shows. It really shows. Meditation is another. And it's a sad commentary when you mention the word meditation and people think you're kind of getting, you're bringing Eastern mysticism into the church. You know? This is not something that Eastern gurus taught. This is something that Jesus and David and Moses and Peter taught. Meditation is where you take passages of Scripture and you think on them and you go over them again and again. You begin to massage them with your life and try to wed them together and get insight. And in time, you know what happens? If I can use an Eastern phrase, you get true enlightenment. You do. You go from what first, uh, Second Peter 1 calls knowledge to true knowledge. And there is a great difference. Knowledge is just knowing the facts. True knowledge is going, aha, I see the beauty in it, the wisdom in it, the reality of it. But it can only be done with deep 
meditation. That's why Psalm 1 tells us to meditate day and night, and it'll be prosperous to us. But we've forgotten that word altogether, much less the discipline. Another discipline is confession, the discipline of honesty. And confession, though it takes place well in the privacy of your own life between you and God, it also works well when you confess to another person. James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. You see, confession allows you to escape the terrible tyranny of pretense that has glazed over so many Christians. To get real. Remember that phrase in the 60s? Get real, brother. It allows us to get real with one another. To expose what's really here. And yet in doing so, we don't find rejection. We find healing and action and assistance and accountability. Confession needs to be practiced regularly in the church. Because when one confesses, it allows the church to escape this ever-encroaching pretense. It reminds us that though all of us look good here this evening, this is not a community of saints. This is a community of sinners. Then there's the discipline of fasting. A discipline that all the spiritual greats have followed. And the primary focus of fasting is to focus some time on God and to carve out some sacrifice like eating in order to have time for that focus in the midst of the day. That's the primary focus. But you know, I think there's a secondary focus that you and I need to hear. Fasting is simply a training method. A very simple training method of flexing the muscle of self-control. Do you need self-control in your life? You know, John Wesley, who was the pioneer of the Methodist church, he wouldn't ordain a man in his day to the Methodist ministry unless that man fasted at least two days a week. Minimum. Now why? Just to do some legalistic exercise? Just to mortify the flesh in some way and, 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 and have no fun in life when you could be out eating at Chili's? You know? No. That wasn't the purpose at all. The purpose was for you to practice like a jogger. You aren't on the playing field. Just to practice in the privacy of your own life. Some self-control. Just to see if you can do it. What you're doing in those moments is you're saying yes to God and no to your flesh. And yes to God and no to your flesh through every meal time. And you're seeing that you can do it. See, a lot of people want to say, no, I'm just an eating addict. And every time we use the word addict, that means we can't control ourselves. But fasting helped us see that there is self-control. And see, when we practice that as a lifestyle, what happens is there comes a moment when we step onto the playing field and there's this great temptation in this moment. Somebody comes and says, Hey, buddy, you've got a promotion and we can move you to Kansas City at twice the pay. Now, you're going to be on the road six nights a week, but you can do it. And if your goal is greatness, you will. But if your goal is godliness, even though that's so tempting to the flesh, that power, that position, that money, see, you've been working out and you're under control in the hour of temptation. And you say, no. No. I don't need that. 
Simplicity is another discipline. An unassessed life produces a clutter of concern. And clutter is one of the great crimes against humanity. Having all these things in your life of the same priority, living for everything, doing anything to get everything. That's the calling of America. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men to be upright. That's simple. But they have sought out many devices. In other words, God's life for you is simple. It's godliness. But we've added complexities to that simpleness. You see, we've added many devices and made our lives complicated. We don't just have a one. We have a one A and B and C and D and E. And we try to do them all. And in time, our life becomes tired and unclear. The joy gets rubbed out of it. There's guilt and corruption, maybe even perversion in pursuits like that. We don't know why, but life sure isn't simple anymore. Jesus said only one thing is necessary, my friend. Only one thing. It's me. Simple. And then finally, there is the discipline of celebration. You know the old phrase, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy? The Westminster Confession says the chief end, this is the way normally it's quoted, the chief end of man is to love God and enjoy Him forever. You know how it's really quoted in the Westminster Confession? The chief end and duty of man. It's his duty to love God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why in the Old Testament, God commands Israel to celebrate. Did you know that? To have fun. Look at Deuteronomy 14 and I'll be closed with this. He commanded them, ironically, to have fun. And I bet in the life of Jesus, as He pulled His men away from time to time, I bet they had fun. I bet they laughed. I bet they told stories. Certainly He told a lot of stories. But I think they had a good time with one another. But in Deuteronomy 14... It's telling Israel to have some holy fun in life. Now I want you to know this. As a church, if we don't have holy fun, there's only one other kind of fun to have, right? And it's unholy fun. It's important for the church to know how to celebrate and enjoy itself. And this is nowhere better stated than here in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, when the Lord God commands the people of Israel to collect a tithe, all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of your field every year. Get a tithe of it, a tenth of it, and take it out. And what do we do with it, Lord? Look at verse 25. Then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and you'll take that money to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So here you go, with money in hand, a tenth of all your produce. And what do we do with that, Lord? Look at verse 26. And there you shall spend the money for whatever your heart desires. For oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your whole household. Have fun. It's on me this year, men. That's what he's saying. Go out and have a good time. 
And some of you have been here, around here for a while, can think back when we celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Man, we had fun that night. Or you think about when we took the community leaders and had the kind of the community Olympics all around the church for a whole day and our rock concert at night. Remember that? Gosh, we had fun. Or the women's retreat. I know you guys have fun. The men's retreat. The staff going off and doing things. Your community group going off. Just getting together with some guys and yucking it up. That's fun. But you know what? That's because the Christian life was not meant to be sober. Sober in direction. But in the midst of that direction, the discipline of celebration. These are the disciplines that God lays out for us. Now some of you may say, man, that sounds like a lot to do. And if it feels weighty, it's because you don't understand them. They're not weighty. They're no different than going out and jogging and enjoying a beautiful day and looking forward to that 10K or working hard at the office because you know you're going to get that big deal. You think of those things as just burdensome? No. Because of the joy set before you, they're exciting. Jesus said, there's a joy set before you. It's life. It's godly life. It's profitable now. It's profitable. It's not pie in the sky. It's profitable right now. But guess what, guys? That profit keeps building forever. But you've got to follow my training techniques. And without them, you won't play with them. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.